It's time for Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Ken is a nationally syndicated automotive journalist and photographer who has been in and around the industry for over 30 years. So tune in for your fill of automotive information and entertainment with your automotive ringmaster, Ken Chester. Welcome to another information-packed hour of Roadworthy Drive. I am Ken Chester, your host, and so glad that you've chosen to spend this time with me. If you're a regular listener, you know just how much we pack in each and every hour that we're together. As usual, this hour is no exception. A bit later in the segment, during breaking news, it's all about earning a degree in self-driving car and hydrogen's slow but steady growth in popularity. Consumer news comes to the fore in the next segment, and later, it's all about loving the one you're with as we talk about passenger-side small overlap crash protection. But first, your input is highly prized and desired here at Roadworthy Drive. Call or text me on the Roadworthy Drive line at 872-222-9793. Now, that's anytime. Or email me at ken at roadworthydrive.com. Questions, comments, ideas, suggestions, they're all welcome. I want to hear from you. Now, during this holiday season, the Roadworthy Drive team wants you to be safe out there on the roads, highways, and byways. It's Christmas music. Get over it. I didn't know where that was coming from. Surprise. In any case, we want you to be safe out there, folks. As you head home to be with family, friends, and loved ones, please don't text and drive. Please don't do that. Also, if you're choosing to partake of some holiday cheer, choose a designated driver. Amen. Please. Too many of our families, friends, and neighbors are dying for no reason out there. Let's be careful out there. Your life or the life of those you, that you care about may be at risk. And trust me, I've seen too much of it my own personal self and unfortunately have some stories of some near misses of people who were under the influence who could have killed a lot of people, and including last Christmas for me. And I really don't want to see that again. So please, 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 please be safe out there. Here in studio, we're all about the safe operation of the program when we're on the air. Our designated driver is also the adult in the room, my good friend and Roadworthy Rive executive producer, Jack DeLeon. Hey, Jack, how you doing? I can. I'm fine. Yes, it's the holiday season. And yes, please do not drink and drive. I, I know mean, that's we, right. I remember a couple of Christmases ago when we had to do a show right after somebody that we cared a lot about died of not being in a, in a, in a drunk driving accident. But that was also the same day that we did the drunk driving show. Mm -hmm. And a year after that, which was this past year, you had that little run in. Yeah. Coming home. Following a drunk driver. Yeah. That I, was... I spent uh, probably 45 minutes on the phone driving with uh, my wife's on the phone talking to them as we talked to sheriffs in two different counties mm -hmm. following this guy. Mm -hmm. The good news is we got him off the road. And by the way, the holiday parties and everything else and the Christmas parties that are going on, please, if you're going to drink, please, 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 please. I realize we're being redundant here. But do not drink and drive. Yeah. I, it, can, I cannot stress that enough. Okay, Ken, it says here in the script, 
Script? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. script? Yeah, you there's have a, a script, script in my hand. There's a, oh my God. There's a script. Uh, you, and you're the one that wrote it, and you don't even know it's here. Oh my goodness. Um, Wait a minute, you get a copy of it? Yes, I have a copy of it. That's scary. And apparently you want to ask me a question. I do. Go ahead. How's your truck? Love it. Uh-huh. Right now the truck is back at the dealer. Uh-huh. Um, for those of you that didn't know, I bought a truck on Black Friday. No, no, no. He bought a new truck, folks. Yeah, I bought a new truck. Brand on Black. new truck. I bought a new had truck a little on... hail damage. Had a little hail damage. And we wanted to find out if the dealer was actually going to make good on and replacing the hood. They are. And they, that's good to know. They came on Friday and, and got the truck and took it and okay. gave me something else to drive. Okay. So you'll so have your truck back this week? Sometime this week. I sometime will have this my, week. Sometime this week I will have my truck back. Okay, bud. Okay. I need you. I need you to explain something to me. Yes, sir. The first topic we're going to talk about is there any self-driving car degree. But my question is, what is a nano degree? A nano degree is a short format. Instead of the typical college degree, you'd get an associate's degree. usually take two years. A bachelor's degree takes four years. Four years, correct. This is a short four-month course. Okay. Explain, please. Hence, a nano degree. It's a small, intense, subject-based degree, uh, in this case, by an online teaching startup called Udacity. That's um, Udacity with a U, not yes, a, a, Audacity with an A. Well, I know some people who are audacious. I understand that, but don't go there. We don't have time. Let's move on. Oh, my goodness. Anyway. All you need is an internet connection and $800 to enroll in this course. It's kind of a prerequisite to a prerequisite. Now, you're going to need to know some sort of programming language like C++, for example, and algebra, which automatically knocks me out because me well, and algebra were never friends. Amen, brother. Now, the good news is that successful graduates of this class will be eligible to automatically enroll in Udacity's self-driving car or robotics nanodegree programs. These ones are more focused about you getting a job in the growing industry. Now, in the self-driving industry, I will say it this way because um, in looking at this, they were talking about uh, the need for people. They were looking for you know people who had experience in um, alternative uh, – in AI, in uh, robotics and vision hardware and applied sciences. The talent – what they're paying talent that has these skills, 200 to $400,000 a year for engineering positions, don't engineers we, with that kind of knowledge. Don't we right now have a shortage, just plain and simple shortage of, of engineers because isn't this why the schools are going to the, to the, to the uh, STEP programs and or, well, I'm sorry, the STEM programs and right. all that stuff? But, it, you know, it does. But now Udacity was trying to resolve this problem, offering micro-credential micro certificate. Uh, certification courses, can't say that right for some reason, mind, designed to make applicants job ready. They're giving you the skills to get a foothold in this industry. And the way things are going now, it is really, um, it, is, it is the now. It is the now industry. Okay. There's billions upon billions upon billions of dollars being spent, invested uh, in the United States and around the world on self-driving technology. Well, and by and, everybody, and we've seen this over the past couple of years. But can the education part of this catch up to how fast the technology is moving? Uh, first, you got to get into the industry. I mean, it's it right now. Tech as a whole mm -hmm. is going at warp speed, and we have tempted over the last two years here on Roadworthy Drive to educate our listeners at the speed of it and to turn it into English. And that's what that has really been our mission here.
mm-hmm. to try to educate the consumer that, yeah, you're hearing all this stuff and it's happening, but it's going to really affect you. And in some cases is already affecting the quality of your life. And it could be affecting also your kids' education from here oh, on out. Oh, it is. It is right this minute. This is happening in real time. Okay, Ken. Second topic. Okay. I'm moving you quickly here. Yes, you are. Oh, Appar- my God. Appar- He's being a little pushy. I noticed that. Uh, yeah. Apparently, you have a slow burn. Not me. Not you? Okay. No. Um, I've, now, it's been rumored that I, when it comes to anger, I'm a slow burn, but that's something else. What? I, I know. Uh, hydrogen. Okay. Hydrogen. Hydrogen is used in a chemical reaction involving a fuel cell to generate electricity. Right. Up till now, we've talked about battery-based electric vehicles that use a lithium-ion battery Mm -hmm. to to make that happen, to produce the current to drive the engines. Um, There is a slow but growing hydrogen infrastructure industry. Would you believe – that right now, this incredibly small number, this 5,500 uh, hydrogen-powered cars in the world, which is no number, really, but 10 manufacturers will be offering hydrogen-powered cars by 2021. Okay. Now, how do I, as a consumer, if I wanted to buy one or had the resources to buy one, where do I fill it up? And that's the problem, sir. One, they're not available. In the United States, they're not available everywhere. Okay. Uh, because of the infrastructure. If you lived in San Francisco, Los Angeles, or in county, then you will probably have a refueling station nearby. If you're in the rest of the country, it's spotty. But the thing is, it's growing, and companies are investing this money as another tool. And this is what we've been talking about. The world and mobility is not going to be one-size-fits-all. It's going to be things like hydrogen. And, in fact, with hydrogen, the big thing is using renewable power to make the hydrogen so it is completely and totally uh, emissions-free. The biggest problem with hydrogen right now is the power plants and the natural gas used from which the hydrogen is made. Once they get it, and we'll be talking in our next show about one automaker who's developing a completely renewable-free plant with renewable power to make hydrogen. That's what's going on. So it's growing. There are three vehicles that Toyota makes, Hyundai makes, and Honda makes that are available now that run on hydrogen in the United States. Now, when I come back in the next segment, tires and tire maintenance, how you doing? After that, loving the one you're with. Passenger side crash safety. You're riding Shotgun with Ken Chester and Roadworthy Drive. Go to RoadworthyDrive.com to check out Ken's blog, listen to past shows, and the times when you can see the show on Facebook Live. nobody in appearance or in engineering it is truly a car that looks and drives like twice the price the 61 valiant looks like a dream and drives like a dream this is the Valiant, the car that you ought to know is rated aces high, although the prices are low. This is a Valiant, and this is easy to see. A Valiant gives you value with a capital B. 
At your Plymouth Valiant dealers. Full disclaimer, I used to own a 1965 Plymouth Valiant. I loved my car. If you're just tuning in, this is segment two of Roadworthy Drive. Welcome. I'm Ken Chester, your host. Now, Jack, Sasha, I've got a question for each of you. Sure. Mm -hmm. How many pairs of shoes do you own? Um, I think I own a total of four. Okay. Um, when do you decide when you need a new pair? Uh, basically, my work shoes right now are so torn up that I need a new pair of work shoes. Okay. So you're about to buy a new pair of work shoes. At some point, yes. At some point. Um, what would cause you to buy them sooner? Um, just comfort for my feet. Okay. Sasha? Yes, sir. How many? Uh, currently, I have about 87 pairs of shoes. Okay. And in your case? Um, <laughs> when, Why? Well, <laughs> I got nothing. Something to go with blue, something yeah. to go with red. But do you inspect your shoes at all ever uh, for damage or yes. cracks? Um, when do you decide to replace them? When something cute comes along online. So, in other words, you could have a raggedy pair of shoes. You'd still wear them? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm really? a sucker for the Doc Martens. And... Especially tennis shoes because when you break yeah. in a pair of shoes that are just that comfortable, yep. you never want to leave them. And I know where this is going because we're going to talk about tires now. Yes, we are. Now, th <laughs> now, think fast. When was the last time either of you inspected the tires in your car? Uh, I don't. That's normally done by the dealer when I get it serviced. Okay, so you don't even look at all? No. Okay, what about you, Sasha? You're looking at me funny. This I, is not good. Uh, I, I see the tires when I approach the car. Oh, boy. <laughs> Most people, like Sasha, only think about tires uh, when they go flat or they're damaged. Now, with winter fast approaching, uh, you might be at greater risk than you think. Now, modern technology is great, but with tires, you're talking about grip, friction, braking, and vehicle control. Uh, let me break this down for you. Those strips of rubber are the only thing between you and a tree, a ditch, hitting another car. Yep. If you don't have, and particularly with a front-wheel drive car, those front wheels are not only pulling you along, but steering you, mm -hmm. helping you get around stuff. If they're bald, if they're damaged, if there's something wrong with them, it could be life or death. Well, and the one thing that I can tell you right now is that we are probably going to have to replace Miss Leanne's tires sometime here. Real and, quick. and that's his missus, folks. And, so you know. and I guess here's the question that I have for you. Yes, sir. Back in the day, mm -hmm. you used to buy tires that were 30,000, 60,000 mile tires, mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see price coming in here? Well, today's tires, you're probably in the sixty to 80,000 mile range. With radial tires, they wear a lot longer. But the issue, what you're dealing with now, mm -hmm. is uh, you've got this, what I call trade-off tire, called an all-season tire. Okay. And an all-season tire is exactly what it says. It's for all seasons. Um, it does it okay. But if you remember, those of us that can, when we were back in college, um, way back when, mm -hmm. we'd have these combination stereo systems that were a combination tuner and record player and you had your bookcase speakers right it was fine for what it needed to do but it didn't do anything particularly well true 
it got you by. It was cheap. You know, you could play your sounds, but the speakers would distort and this, that, and the other. All season tires are kind of like that. Okay, now let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Back in your childhood, let's oh go. Oh my God, do you really want to go back that far? Let's go back that far. Oh, jeez. Well, you grew up out east. I did. Did you guys have two sets of tires for every Absolutely. vehicle? Absolutely. Okay, but, we, but can, hold on a minute. Okay. Now I got to preface this because I am that old. Oh God. Um, back in my day, mm-hmm. we had bias ply tires. Bias ply tires wore quicker than steel belted radial tires that became the norm mm-hmm. in the 1970s. What used to happen back in our day for bias ply is you had two sets of rear tires because most vehicles, almost all vehicles back then were rear wheel drive. Right. So we had, you put on in uh, October, November, snow tires. And where I grew up, chances are they had steel studs in them. Well, and we and I remember the old steel studded tires here. Mm-hmm. However, the state that we live in outlawed them. Well, what it was in the state I lived in is you could run uh, studs from like November to April. Okay. And then you had to change the tires. But it was not unusual to have two to have your regular tires and to have two winter tires. Now right. today you can't do radials like that. You can't put uh, steel, you can't put all seasons in the front and a winter tire in the back. Now, really quick, the difference between the two, a winter uh, radial tire has what you call an aggressive tread. It's a softer tread for better grip mm-hmm. on ice and snow. It also has uh, larger gaps because the more surface area gives you a chance for better grip. It also helps to move you through the snow and dig in. Uh, those types of tires you really got to go a set of four. You can't, because the characteristics of the tires are so different, it would actually cause a uh, control problem for you. You can't put, you can't put all seasons in the front and, and snow tires in the back, radials, or vice versa. you got to go all or nothing. Now, before we run out of time in this segment, let me ask you a question. If I'm the average Joe consumer, mm-hmm. who is a lot like all of us, you know, they go to the dealer, the dealer's checking the tires, they'll, they'll tell them when there's wrong. Or their, what, or their repair shop, which may not necessarily be the dealer. Well, and, th- and that's true. Their regular neighborhood mechanic. If I walk out to my vehicle and all of a sudden I see something funky wrong with the tire, like it's got a bulge or it's you got... You need to go to your mechanic or your dealer because chances are that tire is compromised and needs to be replaced. They say, on average, even with no problems, you need, you need to be replacing your tires. Wear aside, just based on age, between 6 and 10 years old. That if you're driving on tires that are older than 6 years old, the chances that a failure involuntarily go up considerable. Okay, but we're, you know, we're not talking mileage now. We're talking about age. Well, you would still talk mileage, obviously. Obviously, on tread issues... That's still a mileage issue. And you have wear bands that run perpendicular to the tire. If you see the bands, you need to change the tire. That's the simple. And then there's the old penny. If you see Lincoln's head and if you don't, uh, the more of the penny that's covered, the better tread you've got. Well, and the, and the other thing, too, is the dealer's always telling me at 430 seconds we change the tires. Period. Yeah, which actually depends on state law. You can get, in some cases, down to one, uh, one um, sixteenth. That is bald. Yeah, that's pretty close to it. So you've got that. Um, Please be safe. Check your tires. Your life might depend on it. Now, coming up, loving the one you're with. The Insurance Institute for Highway Safety evaluates passenger side, small front overlap crash protection. And in the final segment, the autonomous gasoline-free future of General Motors. 
This is Roadworthy Drive. Roadworthydrive.com is the place to keep up with the latest happenings with Ken and the show. This is the third segment of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Chester. For those of you that want or need more than your fair share of the road, be sure to check out the show website, www.roadworthydrive.com. There, find audio clips of our past shows, video clips of our YouTube live behind-the-scenes antics in studio while we're producing the show, and much, much more. The show website is also a great place to discover what and where we are in the world of social media. Our super special social media diva, Sasha, keeps things light and lively during the week between shows as she shares news and goings-on in the world of automotive tech and more. See how she keeps the social in our social media. Offset frontal crash tests. The Insurance Institute for Highway Safety has been conducting these driver's side for a number of years. The results of their efforts have been to increase the safety and survivability of these types of crashes, which is estimated to be some 45% of all vehicle-to-vehicle collisions. Recently, they started to turn their attention to the front passenger side of the car. I call this segment Loving the One You're With. Did I tell you while we were back at Leanne's mom's for Thanksgiving that they just got rid of a minivan because they had a passenger side offset crash? Oh, no. Yeah, wasn't their fault. Yeah, that's kind of how that happens. After seeing the pictures, mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty bad. Well, here's the thing. Um, up till now, and people need to realize this, first of all, and I say this all the time, there is no federal standard for how to measure, how to evaluate what a vehicle needs to do in an offset frontal crash. Let me give you an example. Okay. Are we talking 10% of the front of the vehicle? 15, 20, 25, 30%? Right now, the federal government only tests. They have a 40-mile-an-hour full frontal test. As far as offset, a piece of the front, they don't. Uh, driver's side or passenger side. Okay, it's NHTSA the one that's doing the, uh, the offsets. Uh, actually, no. It's not federal. It's the Insurance Institute for Highway Highway Safety Safety. that does it. Now, here's the thing. If you're a manufacturer and you want safe cars, how do you decide in the absence of a standard how to – I mean, how do you engineer that car? Because there's an expense. There's a testing expense. There's a material expense. There's an engineering expense to deciding, okay, do I want to make this safe so that – the, the parameters are 25% of the front of the car. Uh, should it be 10%? Should it be 15%? Why? Because all those forces, the, small, the less part of the front of the car subjected to the forces, the more potential for damage. Wouldn't you already have a lot of that information in, in, in crash data? No. No. Here's what I'm saying. If it's a driver's side or a passenger side offset, Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we know how many number of crashes that there were of each in a year? Not necessarily, because then how are you going to define the crash? 10% of the front, 
30% of the front? Is it a little car? Is it a minivan? Is it an SUV? All that dynamic stuff is different. Correct. And all that has different engineering uh, inputs and safety inputs and expenditures in the billions of dollars to make that happen. And that's, and that's what I wanted to lay for the groundwork. Okay. Okay. Now. Here's what they did. In their case, um, they've decided to use, and the example was, their test, their new test, sends a vehicle into a barrier at 40 miles an hour with just 25% of the vehicle's front end overlapping the barrier. That was on the driver's side. They're doing the same sort of test on the passenger side, and they just started doing that. Now, the good news is that the 13 Mid-sized cars that they tested for 2016, 10 of them earned a good rating for that kind of accident. One was acceptable and two earned a marginal rating. That's now. Now, the good, the better news is that the automakers pay attention to these kinds of tests. And I'm going to tell you, I've been to Charlottesville. I've been in their garage. I have seen the vehicles they kept. After they've been crashed, I've gotten a chance to see them up close and personal. And I want to tell you, Jack, it's sobering to see what's left of these vehicles once they've been crashed. It is just sobering to see any vehicle that is crashed. I wonder how people walked out. Yeah, but in this case, uh, there were two, and I'm not going to name the brands, uh, that I saw that I know in the one case, and it was a minivan, uh, the driver would have had to been cut out of it. It was that bad. Okay. Uh, That was very sobering. It made up in my mind that I would make sure that my loved ones never owned that vehicle. It was that bad. Wow. Indeed. Now, ironically, of now they didn't test everything, but I'm going to give you of the 13 they tested, I'm going to name the following vehicles that were good across the board for overall integrity, structure, intrusion. In other words, less of the car that came into the passenger compartment as a result of the accident, less possibility for damage. And then it talked about passenger restraints, what they call kinematics. In other words, how the body moved in response to the collision and if they were protected when they moved. Because there's a certain way that, you know, you're talking about gravity and force and physics. One car... Ford Fusion did well across the board. Honda Accord did well across the board. The Lincoln MKZ, which is the sister to the Fusion, by the way, did good across the board. And here are two. The 2018 Subaru Legacy, the 2018 Subaru Outback. These all, across the board of the 13 they tested, got uh, good marks across the board and would have made their their top uh, plus-plus uh recommendation and see and it doesn't surprise me with the subarus Mm -hmm. Mm because it just seems like that through the years they have always done their own crash testing well all the automakers do their own crash testing they all do uh the question is is the very thing i talked about if you are a manufacturer there are some very real legitimate financial engineering issues involved if it's going to cost you more money to do a certain thing and put you make the car uncompetitive price-wise, then it doesn't matter. So at the best, yeah, it's hard to say, you know, nobody should be uh, pricing safety. Safety should be tantamount. But the question is, the average buyer is only going to pay so much. I understand that. However, with our lawsuit-happy culture that we live in today, mm-hmm. 
you don't do the, you don't do the research. You don't put that much into safety. I have a crash. Everybody in that car is killed, but me. Everybody in my family okay, is but killed. Okay, but let me but let me stop you a minute. I'm gonna I'm gonna sue you for not having a safe car. Okay, but stop a minute. Every single car sold in America has to meet federal motor vehicle safety standards. Doesn't matter what. These I could argue, since there are no safety standards at the federal level, you're making a decision, an engineering decision, an expense decision. The car might have been safe at, uh, say. Uh, 15, well, 25%, but maybe this was 15% of the front. you got to make that decision. I'm building a car to meet the standards that they're testing and recommending my car. If it's less than that, maybe not so much. When I return for the last segment, it's all about the autonomous, gasoline-free future of General Motors. This is Roadworthy Drive. Have a question, idea, or comment for Ken? You can let him know by calling 872 888 9793. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Leave Ken a voicemail message or a text. This is the fourth and final segment of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester, and I'm so glad that you came along for the trip. Two words, General Motors. I bet if you've been listening to this program for a while, you figured that Tesla was just about all we talked about. And believe it or not, yes, we realize there are other automotive manufacturers out there making a difference in the self-driving and alternative fuels arenas. I collected a few stories about what GM has been up to lately. And you know what? I want to share. So I'm going to, I'm going to share a little bit. Well, that's nice you're willing to share. I am. Um, I'm going to start with this bombshell. Uh, this is a headline. GM sees autonomous vehicle market growing to trillions. Yeah, I'm going to let that sink in. GM has made it clear it's committed to a zero emissions future and a major electrification push. They expect to be selling two crossover electric vehicles by 2020, and they expect a commercial launch of autonomous vehicles, what they call at scale. That means in volume. In urban environments, when, as my producer says, wait for it, 2019, and long-term potential in the million, I'm sorry, trillions of dollars from automated or autonomous vehicles. GM is a big believer that autonomous driving will save lives and money over time. Here's the thing. There's a goal to see first mover escape velocity with this AV strategy. And they're going to use uh, their Maven ride sharing service um, as a leader in getting that in there. And now we've talked about that. And GM has, has telegraphed that they're going to use Maven to introduce to the public, to the driving public, to the public. They're going to use Maven to introduce this type of mobility over time. And from what we can tell, people are ready for it. More than you think. Um, more than you think. I was very surprised. Now, this past week, literally two to three days ago, GM introduced its growing fleet of self-driving Chevy Bolts. That's Bolt with a B. Of all places, San Francisco. 
here's what they said. Everything we are doing is geared to speed. That was from the GM president. Outlining that the cars will be ready for consumer applications. Again, this is GM talking in quarters, not years. And Jack is looking at me very, very darkly. No, I'm actually just sitting here going, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, trust me. Because, as you know, I am not a believer in autonomous cars. But here's the beautiful thing, Jack. With what we've talked about with, about mobility, autonomy is just one facet of a growing menu of choices. Uh, internal combustion engine choices, electric choices, hydrogen choices, uh, ride sharing, ride hailing, um, rent a car for like by the minute. All of these things. Even in Boston. In Boston, Zipcar announced that you could rent a car to go back and forth to work. That's all. Back and forth to work. $249 a week. Back and forth to work. That's expensive. Could be, but <laughs> you ever been to Boston? No. Trust me. If you, if you, since you don't have to park the car, and if you work downtown, yeah, that thing almost pays for itself with the parking. Because you'll easily spend... $20, $30 a day parking downtown Boston. Wow. If you can find a parking spot. This so. is why I live in the Middle West. Uh-huh. Let me now. I'm, I want you to remember this. I wrote this down. I'm going to read it to you. Okay. For GM, the self-driving program is a cornerstone, a cornerstone to long-term growth that is not dependent on simply Selling vehicles to independent drivers. Two years ago, GM and the Ford Motor Company said that the model they've used for over 100 years of selling vehicles to individuals was no longer sustainable. They both said it. Well, yeah, because their cars are inflated, but move on. No, it's, it's the point because things are changing. Things are changing. The irony of it, Jack, your next vehicle after this truck will either be highly automated or fully automated if you chose to own a vehicle. You may choose, with the economics of the future, not to own a vehicle at all. And my question comes down to this. What are these cars going to cost? They about have to cost the same cost of what I'm paying for right now. You're making an assumption that you'll even choose to buy it. You might choose, well, like your cell well, phone again, plan. Again, like I said before. Uh-huh. Until I actually physically see what's around me, mm -hmm. I am not a fan of this. Well, you know, and, and you're entitled to your opinion, sir. But right now, technology is going full, full bent towards an autonomous future. And the number that they keep using is one that NHTSA gave. Going full autonomous by the 2030s will reduce the number of deaths at on the roads by 90%. That means that over 30,000 people will still be alive that would have died. That's the bottom line. The beautiful part is no one's going to take your internal combustion car away. If you want to buy one, you should still be able to for at least the next 20, 25 years. But, the, but the, again, the issue is going to be higher insurance rates, higher gas prices, higher maintenance because. Yep. Yep. Because, okay, you know, now, okay. The economics are going to end up making the internal combustible engine go away like everything else. Yeah, Not, they're going to fine you to death. Uh, to oh, yeah. Okay. Exactly. I disagree with both of you. Number one, you're forgetting 
uh, EPA standards through 2022 require internal combustion engines to be a third more efficient than they are now. If the current administration does not change what they call the midterm requirements for 2025, they have to be double what they are now. And with technology, which we've reported here, with respect to uh, gasoline and crude oil, uh, we're seeing prices adjusted for inflation that's as low as they've ever been. That's not going to change in the immediate future. In fact, we reported here on this program not two weeks ago that the United States of America will be number one in crude oil production. When you're generating that much crude and you're doing that through refineries, gasoline prices, they've estimated, will remain flat for at least 10 to 15 years. This goes back to supply and demand. Yeah. This is basic economics. If you have a bunch of cars out there that used to burn oil that Mm. now are burning gas— you're going to have a problem. Perhaps. But with technology, we're all speculating. The beautiful part about this and what GM, Ford, BMW, Volkswagen, and a host of other automakers are betting on is that choice will rule and the consumer will decide. And on that note, we've run through another hour. How time flies. On behalf of the team here and at Roadworthy Drive, I want to thank you for listening You've been listening to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation.